Hey, it's Joyce. Every week, I have the chance to chat with an interesting, inspiring human and to share that conversation with you. Join me as I walk and talk with entrepreneurs, adventurers, and all sorts of people who are working hard to empower women and make the world a better place. Now listen, this is not some highly polished, formally produced podcast. It's just two humans out for a walk with the chance to learn from each other. So lace up your sneakers, head out the door, and join us. Hey everyone, Joyce here, and I could not be any more excited to welcome my friend, Juliet Starrett, who is the co-founder and CEO of The Ready State. She is an entrepreneur, she is an attorney, or as I like to refer to myself, and Juliet, a recovering attorney. She's a podcaster, <laughs> she's an author, most recently of a book that she wrote with her husband and business partner, Kelly, called Built to Move, The 10 Essential Habits to Help You Move Freely and Live Fully. And while Juliet and I could talk about a million different things, I am going to work today, Juliet, to try to keep us focused on this book because it needs to be in the hands of as many people as possible. So welcome back. This is not your first time joining me. So welcome back and thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Joyce. I'm so excited to chat. So uh, you have written in the past. Kelly has written in the past. Tell me what inspired you guys to write Built to Move. Sure. I think it, you know, there were definitely many inspirations, and so I'll just hit on a few. But I think a couple big ones come to mind as you ask me this question and as I'm speaking to your community in particular. And the first one is that while Kelly and I live, breathe, talk, health, fitness, wellness, it's what we like to do for recreation and where we live in our professional lives. We also are two busy working parents and we live amongst a community of, you know, other busy working parents. And we've become friends with many of those people. Um, and, and a lot of them are, you know, two working parent households, you know, raising kids, just trying to, you know, make it all happen. And they are people who care a lot about their health and well-being and they're, you know, starting to crest into their 40s and 50s and care about their, their aging process and longevity. And yet they would never describe themselves as an athlete. And, you know, unlike Kelly and I, they're not talking about, you know, how, many, how much sleep we should be getting at the dinner table. Um, you know, they have other <laughs> sort of interests, right? But what we started realizing is that Kelly and I were like the health and fitness wellness node in our community. On any given day, people were knocking at our door saying, hey, Sarah, you know, I heard about this thing called intermittent fasting. Should I do that? Or should I stick with a keto diet, maybe paleo or Mediterranean? Should I become a vegan? You know, and then when as regards to their physical health, you know, we our garage is always open for any neighborhood, you know, person who throws out their back and you know, can't walk or do, you know, go to work. Um, you know, there was just what we found was a ton of general confusion about what to prioritize, what to deprioritize. And that really got us thinking that, wow, we're in this universe where there is more and more and more information available. Mm -hmm. um, tons of it, as, as, as a matter of fact. People are actually being firehosed with information, but what I think that's created is a lot of confusion. And so, so I think that was the one element, is that you know we have friends and neighbors 
who need a resource and something that's, you know, relatable and accessible to figure out some little small levers to change their health and feel good in their body. And then the second influence, you know, we, we started thinking and talking about this book before the pandemic. And what we saw in the pandemic is that, you know, people really struggled with their health. Um, you know, once we took people out of their communities and stuck people at home and, you know, took away their movement options, um, you know, we struggled as a society with our physical and mental health. And what we also saw is that we had a bunch of friends who were all of a sudden tracking um, metrics like, uh, you know, their SAO2 and their heart rate variability. And, you know, again, this mm -hmm. is like my mom neighbor, right? People started to become comfortable with these vital signs. And we thought, man, the idea of vital signs really needs to be expanded. If everyday people can understand, you know, what good and bad blood pressure is, then why don't we have other simple, relatable vital signs that people can test on themselves in their own home without the need of any professional, just to sort of get a baseline of where they are and give them some simple tools to start to improve on those vital signs. And so, again, there were a lot of influences that went into this book, but those are kind of two that are top of my mind this morning. And there's so much even baked into that answer um, and all of that background, but just to dig in for a minute, I talk about this as well because we share a lot of the same kind of philosophies around these sorts of things. And the fire hose of information, I am often saying like, we have never as a society known more than we know right now about what it takes to be healthy and well. And yet as a society, we're getting less healthy and less well. So like clearly it's not just more information and data we need. Right. We no, I mean, yeah, you know, I um, this this guy I know um, that, that I love kind of love this quote. He's like, he's like, you know, your feelings don't outweigh the data. <laughs> and right. I, I love that because, you know, the data like we, we can all think that, you know, we're trying to add our sort of good information to the universe. But the data shows that we are not doing well by any right physical or mental marker like it there's no arguing we're not doing well you know I mean our our kids are in a generation of people who are going to have a shorter lifespan you know our lifespan has been increasing steadily for the last 50 years and it looks like our kids are the ones that are going to be part of a group whose lifespan actually decreases for the first time and that's just one of you know 20 other data points that you and I could quote showing that it's not going well for us <laughs> as a society right. <laughs> Yeah, and this this effort to try to cut through it and, and encourage people to focus on at least a few things, right? And be willing to get your own personal baseline. I think that's that's part of it as well. Is a kind of an unwillingness or a lack of interest or a feeling of overwhelm that makes us think. I, I just don't want to know. You know, I'm thinking about, uh, so I want to talk about a couple of specific areas of focus of the book, and there are many. It was very hard to choose, but just to give you sort of a, a highlight, I want to talk a little bit about sleep because I think that's so underappreciated. Um, I want to talk a little bit about balance. I love the story you share. I think it's your mom, not Kelly's mom, right? Your mom yes. and the bicycle? Yes. 
Yeah. Yep. I want to talk a little bit about balance because that's really interesting. Um, and then I definitely want to do a quick mention of flip-flops and frappuccinos just to give you an idea of what's <laughs> high on my Perfect. mind, right? Perfect. But I'll tell you a quick story about me and sleep. So I'm a great sleeper. It's one of my superpowers. I love to sleep. I love my bed. I love all the things. And I will prioritize sleep over other things that I really want to do, right? I really want to go to X, Y, or Z, but I'm going to prioritize sleep. Not everybody does that. I do. So I don't know about, I don't know, a couple of years ago, a very dear friend of ours uh, worked for, ran a large company that makes one of the devices that'll help you measure your sleep, right? So he sent us a couple to try. So I was wearing this sleep tracker and it totally disrupted my sleep because then I was thinking about, you know, you turn over in the middle of the night and you're like, oh, am I awake? Am I asleep? What's this? How is this going to track? You wake up in the morning, you're looking at the... And for me, it was really disruptive. Um, so I do think that kind of plays into this idea of how much information is too much. So just starting with right. that, like, do you guys track your sleep? Well, you know, here's what I say. I, I would, um, I'll start by saying I totally know what you mean. And I think you know, whenever a device is telling us how to feel or overriding our own instinct and feeling, that's definitely bad. And I think these devices often can do that for people. Um, I do track my sleep and I don't find that it, it influences how I feel. I've always been kind of a nerdy tracker. I like to track a lot of different things. Um, Kelly, on the other hand, we call him a Luddite. He doesn't care for any form of tracking. Um, you know, he, he really just does want to rely on sort of how he feels and what's going on in his body and, and make tweaks to his, you know, his habits and activities based on that. I will say that I do think it is cool for everybody to track their sleep, but on a very short-term basis, just to get some general yeah. data about yourself. Like I'm talking two weeks, you know, um, for that reason, I think it's good to just sort of, you know, get some data about kind of what your heart rate variability might be, you know, does it seem like you're touching enough deep sleep and REM sleep, you know, just some general data. But I think for the vast majority of the people, vast majority of people doing that once to get some information and then, you know, throwing that thing in your bathroom and, you know, letting it lie is probably better. And, you know, I, I also, um, I just really want to emphasize that the moment any of these devices start to influence how you feel, <laughs> is to me the moment they should leave your life. And I think that's yeah. really different for everybody. Uh, and I think it goes to that, to where we actually started the conversation around how much data is good. And the, to your point, it's an individual kind of question. How much data is good for you and how much data is not? So let's talk a little bit more about sleep and some connections between sleep and, uh, and pain. Yeah, sure. I mean, I want to start by saying that I I really consider it's hard for me to choose any one of the vital signs in our book as being more important than the other, because that's like, you know, saying which one of your children do you like more? But were I pressed, I would say that to me, sleep is the number one most important thing. I consider it to be a keystone habit from which all good habits flow you know, like good nutrition and productivity at work and healthy, happy relationships and good mental health and, you know, all the things I'm sure that, you know, you have talked about ad nauseum on this podcast about the importance of sleep. 
And, you know, I would like to make the point that there is a, there is a very small subset of our population, it's like less than a half a percent, who have this genetic anomaly that actually allows them to be rested on less than seven hours of sleep. But, you know, chances oh, are... no. Don't you wish you were one of those people? Oh, man, I wish. Exactly. I mean, my I could be so productive. But, you know, I, I just, for the, list, for the listeners here, chances are you're not one of those people. Um, and you're not a special flower who can, you know, function on, on less than seven to nine hours of sleep. So I, I just, I just want to, you know, put that in the sand. But one of the reasons I think that sleep is so important is, is exactly what you said, all of these different ways that it impacts positively or negatively other parts of our life. So my husband, Kelly, is, you know, on the pain question, my husband, Kelly, is one of the most sought after physical therapists and people will fly, you know, fly across the country to see him if they have a complex problem that they haven't had solved by other physical therapists. And I think, or doctors, I think often people think that Kelly's going to clap his hands together and perform some kind of, you know, (laughs) super amazing magic and, you know, like fairy dust is going to land on them and they're going to be well, right? But it turns out that, you know, Kelly really relies on a lot of the basic principles. And I'll, I'll talk about low back pain for a second. You know, if you come to see Kelly for low back pain, you know, again, I think people would think that he'd be doing all these fancy moves and mobilizations and crazy physical therapy things. And, you know, what Kelly does is three things. You know, he uh, tells people they need to be walking more, which I thought you'd appreciate. That's like number one mm-hmm. on the list. So yep. contrary to what m- a lot of advice is about pain, his advice is actually to move more, but move more in this very safe, easy way, which is walking. Um, he prescribes them to get at least eight hours of sleep per night, not seven, eight. Um, and he teaches them how to breathe. And those are the three core pieces of his low back pain protocol. Now, of course, he can do some hip mobility work and he has some manual tools he can he can draw from from his physical therapy toolkit. But those three things are first order of business with anyone with low back pain. Walk more, get eight hours of sleep, not seven or eight to nine hours of sleep, and learn how to breathe. And the reason that the eight hours of sleep is so important is the research shows that at eight hours, that's where, you know, we can improve our memory, grow muscle, recover from surgery, you know, get out of pain. And, and it turns out that our body's ability to recover and, and, and even understand how we perceive pain is greatly impacted by the amount of sleep and the quality of sleep we're getting. So man, anyone who's listening to this, who's in pain and you know, we all either have been or are going to be, right? Like sleep is your first order of business is getting your sleep in order. And of course, I'm not a Pollyanna. I know that when you're in pain, sleep then becomes more difficult, right? It becomes a, it can can become a vicious cycle. Um, But man, the goal is to prioritize it and make it as dense and long as you can. Uh, and that's what I was going to say is this idea, or just to add to that thought, this idea of prioritizing sleep when you're, in reco- when you're recovering from something, when you're in pain, the magic is to do your very best to build really good sleep habits before. 
Yes. Right? Like this yes. should be and something you prioritize every single I, – I, certainly I do, as I said. Like I'll, I'll skip things I really want to do. And people are like, you really go to bed at 9 o'clock? And I'm like, I really go to bed at 9 o'clock. Yep. Yeah, and I think that they're um... – Man, I echo that, and I think one of the things that I really learned when I did first start tracking my sleep, and, and I you know, was sort of backed up by doing so much research on sleep around this book, but that you know, on average, people lose between 30 minutes and an hour of sleep a night normally and naturally from various wake cycles you know, to the time it takes you to fall asleep, you know, getting up to use the bathroom. It's normal and common to wake up a lot in the night and often as much as an hour. And that is still totally normal and part of a normal sleep cycle. But, you know, if you, if your goal is to get eight hours of sleep, that means you actually need to be laying there for nine hours. And I think that's <laughs> a small tweak that people don't, you know, we've had so many people say, yeah, I go to bed at 10 and I wake up at six. And I'm like, great, that's seven hours of sleep. Just FYI. Like, you know, um, and so that's, so, you know, as we're sort of planning and managing our own sleep, you know, to the extent that we want to, to bias getting more sleep, we always add an extra at least 30 minutes, if not an hour, to sort of account for all that wakeful time. Um, I want to change gears for a minute. So uh, for many of us grew up with the lexicon of stretching, right? That was, that was the language. And the lexicon has changed and evolved to this idea of mobility, a mobility yep. practice, which goes far beyond, you know, you think about the, the old ballet days, right, of putting your foot up on the bar and stretching your hamstrings, right? So can you share for people who have come across this kind of shifting of language and philosophy, where we are around this idea of mobility, kind of what it means, how do you think about it, how do you add mobility to your life, kind of what is a mobility practice? Sure. And, you know, just to sort of give the most base description, you know, stretching can really be thought of as, as you know, just limited to kind of trying to stretch your musculature. Um, the difference between stretching and mobility is that mobility really is a practice that not only stretches your muscles, but does also incorporate your joints and, and maybe most importantly, your brain. It brings in this brain body connection into the practice that just typical sort of hanging on your, you know, hamstrings in a forward stretch doesn't actually do. And it turns out that when you teach your brain that these new positions you're trying to adopt are safe, you're more likely to see lasting change, right? I think the reason that so many people drop stretching is they're like, yeah, I stretched for half an hour. And then, you know, two hours later, my body was back to exactly how it was before, right? And that is, that can be demotivating. But when you have a mobility practice that incorporates your joints, your muscles, your fascia, your soft tissue, and and really links that brain-body connection, you can see lasting change in your in your range of motion and flexibility. And so that's why we think it's such a more productive practice. There are a lot of definitions out there of what mobility means, but I'm going to go ahead and just draw a line in the sand and say it's this. You know, having mobility is the ability to move freely through your environment without pain and to do the things you want to be able to do with your body. And on that last piece, I want to emphasize that that is very different for everybody. It's just, what you want to do with your body is very personal. 
But what we do know is that everybody has physical goals of some kind, whether that's just to, you know, get up and walk with your friends every morning for two hours or half an hour, or whether you want to train for an Ironman triathlon, right? It doesn't matter where you are. Everybody has movement goals and nobody's movement goal is to, you know, end up in a skilled nursing facility when they're 80 years old, right? That, that goal doesn't exist in people's minds. And so what mobility, what having mobility and focusing on mobility can do is allow you to be able to move freely and feel good in your body so you can do the things you want to do in your body. And, you know, again, that might be being able to walk 20,000 steps with your grandchild at Disneyland when you're in your 60s. Or it might be climbing Mount Everest, right? Again, vast differences in goals, but ultimately your body needs to be able to move freely to do whatever it is you want to do. And that's mobility. I love that. And I love how personal that is and how accessible it is, frankly, because if you identify what you want, whoever the you is in that conversation, in that sense, right, whatever you want, whatever is important to you, and then undertake the practices that will help get you there, then literally it's open to everybody. And I think that's a big part. You and I share, uh, I think, this view of kind of what the fitness industrial complex has told people in general and women in particular about what fitness and wellness looks like. And I I think we share the mission of just changing that, that view, that look, and really telling everybody you have the capacity to develop the patterns and the habits and the practices that you need to move through your day and your life in the best possible way for you. And it's a Through totally fact, different perspective, right? Yeah, we we really get is. right up there. I know we're side by side on that soapbox, you and me, for sure. <laughs> um, and I want to put a little emphasis, um, Juliet, you shared so much in that last response around this idea of mobility. And I want to go back to something that I think people don't necessarily put enough attention on. And this is this brain-body connection. So just sharing a little bit of my story, you know, and I think you know this, I've been working through a lower back injury for literally a couple of years. Um, yep. And one of the things I really needed to teach my brain and my body is that moving in this particular movement pattern is safe for me. And yep. it's really... I I literally, I was in the gym this morning thinking about exactly that. Like I was telling my body, deadlifting is safe for you. I literally was thinking this as I am deadlifting a kettlebell, right? So we, we also, I think there's reminding people, like I know it's so stupid to say it, but like your brain and your body are intimately connected. Like... Oh, my God. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we have been hoping to try to change people's minds about is really rethinking what pain is and Mm -hmm. reframing it as a request for change versus a threat. Now, of course, people get catastrophically injured. You know, if you break your leg and your bone is sticking out of your body, man, of course, go see a doctor. And, you know, there's obviously catastrophe. but most of the pain that we experience in our lifetime as humans 
is just sort of that kind of like it's lower level, it's more nagging, it maybe, you know, closes the door on some kind of physical activity that you love doing, you know, it's kind of bothersome, you can mostly go about your life doing most things, but you know, maybe you used to be able to run and now you can't run as an example, right? But I think when people start reframing pain in their minds as a request for change, that empowers them to actually be able to take advantage of the myriad of tools out there to be able to relieve your own pain. And one of those things, one of those many tools is a dedicated mobility practice. And anyone listening to this may think, man, I don't have time to add a mobility practice. Like I'm already walking and doing all these other things, right? But a mobility practice is something that can literally happen in 10 minutes a night on your living room floor while you're watching Netflix. And I think people would be surprised to see how much change they can make in their body and particularly in their pain when they approach it with the mindset that pain is a request for change and that I have the tools in my own personal toolkit and on my living room floor to actually be able to make some change in my body. And, you know, that's a really empowering place to be. And, and, you know, it really is a change in how we think about what pain means in our lives. Uh, you know, this uh, this is a departure from some of the things because, gosh, there's still so many things I want to chat with you about. <laughs> but, Juliet, I know that you and Kelly have done some things around your home and environment to make it easier for you to kind of incorporate this sort of mobility and movement and balance practice and all the different things uh, kind of into your day-to-day. And I think that's uh, I, I, kind of unusual. So... But like really valuable, right? So you stay 10 minutes in the evening in your living room, but you need some tools. And like, what about having, what about rolling out your feet while you're brushing your teeth or what? So can you share just a little bit of your philosophy of like the tools and the things that you've created around your environment? So to make this sort of practice easier to access? Yes. And, you know, I'll start by saying I think making small tweaks to our environments is the key to long-term success. Unfortunately, our in-home and work environments and even our larger communities are really set up to de-emphasize movement. You know, I mean, there's I'm lucky enough to live in a community. In fact, I'm walking around in it right now where we have something like sidewalks where it's safe for me to take a walk. But a lot of people live in communities without sidewalks where it's not safe to go out and walk their dogs. And, you know, we were in a society that drives everywhere and, you know, sits in chairs at work. And so our environment right now is working against us. And so what Kelly and I have tried to do is change our own home environment because that's something that we can control. You know, we can't control whether our neighborhood has sidewalks, but we can control whether our home is is what we call a movement-rich environment. And I'll just tell you a little bit about what that means. You know, in our living room, we have a bunch of like comfy mats where you can sit on the floor in front of the couch um, because just the act of sitting on the floor for 30 minutes a day can really improve your mobility without any tools. But also nearby, um, in little baskets and drawers around our living room, we have you know, foam rollers and lacrosse balls and mobility tools and, you know, lots of little ways in which we can, you know, work on our mobility while we're watching TV at night. And so what we've done is take away, you know, 
the need for willpower and motivation to do these practices because you're like, oh, well, I'm, you know, sitting on the floor watching, you know, my favorite Netflix show and, oh, look, there's a foam roller right there. I may as well roll out my calves while I'm watching the show. Um, and similarly, we've done other things. You know, we have, we happen to have a kitchen where we redid our counters and we sort of have a two height kitchen counter where one is at a standing height and one is more of a counter height. So when I'm working at home, I can alternate between sitting and standing throughout my workday comfortably. You know, our garage is full of toys and balance boards and, you know, little things where you, it just makes it really easy to throw a Frisbee or stand on a balance board or, you know, incorporate play into our, our days and evenings. And, you know, I think what we've tried to do is just in any area of our house, we've tried to think, how can we make this space a little more movement rich so that we, again, don't have to rely on movement or on motivation and willpower when we're just getting home from work late at night and exhausted. You know, you just happen to stand on the balance thing because it's right there. Or it's easier for me to just move over to my standing workstation at home because it's right there. Same with a mobility practice. And so we really think, you know, the way to actually start to incorporate these habits into our lives is to really rethink our own home environment as much as we possibly can so that they, you know, that our environment encourages movement without thinking. That's the goal. And there's something you, you baked into that as well that I want to emphasize a little bit more, which is you talk about two things kind of interchangeably, which is mobility and play. And I think yes. that's part of the shifts that we also need to keep making and advocating for is around the idea that play and mobility can be synonymous. Oh, like, yeah. I mean, I, you know, all, like we don't, we don't have to take it all so seriously all the friggin' time, right? Seriously. I mean, you are so correct. I think it's another way in which I feel, you know, critical of the fitness industrial complex is that, you know, man, we've made all this fitnessing and health and wellness and all this stuff like a chore. You know, you got to take these 67 pills every morning. You have to choke them down and, you know, then just <laughs> eat kale and go do a sad, boring workout on your Peloton or whatever. I mean, we've really done our level best to make this as not fun as possible. And, you know, Kelly and I, Kelly and I are, you know, like probably, you know, like kids at heart and we love to play and throw balls and frisbees and, you know, we have like a bow and arrow set up in our backyard. And, you know, we, we really have tried to like pepper our house with tools and toys to encourage playing. You know, one of the ways where we actually add in play into our lives is when we're going to do a workout, we often don't do some kind of standard warm up where you sit on the bike and do some mobility work. We actually will go into our street and throw the frisbee. Um, mm. Or, you know, we have, we have mitts in a ball. We'll throw a ball. Like, you know, we try to think of fun, playful ways to, you know, do warm-ups versus the boring, you know, boring warm-ups we do. Because, man, I mean, you know, I think what we we have to remember is that we're only going to do things in our life that bring us joy and that are fun. And it's no wonder so many people drop fitness routines because they're boring and not fun. And there's no play involved. Like, you know, like I couldn't be more happy that the sport of pickleball is blowing up because you know, it's accessible, it's fun, people are going out. I mean, the, the amount of reasons of pickleball, like I almost am as much of a fan of pickleball as I am of walking. 
because, you know, it's community. It's getting some sunlight on your body. It's a skill. You know, you like, it's a physical activity. It's fun. I mean, there's so many things about pickleball that I'm a fan of because, and I think the reason it's exploded is exactly what we're talking about, which is people are like, wait, I don't want to just sit in some dark, sad indoor gym on the Stairmaster. There's got to be a better way to move my body that's actually fun and brings me joy. I literally can't believe you, you brought this up because about six months ago, Eric and I started playing pickleball and we are addicted and it is so fun. <laughs> and when people, I, I was just talking at a beach party the other night to a woman who's a tennis snob and yes. I get it like tennis is elegant and tennis is fabulous. And I used to be a tennis player and she's like, so what is it about pickleball? And I literally said to her, it's just more fun. Yep. It's just And it's fun. accessible. I mean, I've never played tennis in my entire – and by the way, we're not, like, into pickleball. We've only played a couple times but had a grand old time when we did. But, I mean, That's we, so fun. Kelly and I, we have literally zero tennis background, never played tennis, could not play a game of tennis to save myself. You know, we, we do both, like, ping pong. For um, That's the other thing is <laughs> our ping pong table is currently broken, but, like, it's, you know, talking about ways we incorporate play into our lives, like, Kelly and I had a ping pong table for a long time, but it's funny because just our limited ping pong skills were enough to make us like fine at pickleball. Um, but again, so accessible off the couch, no experience playing any racket sport ever. And we were totally able to play pickleball. So, you know, accessibility for the win <laughs> and fun for, for sure. I cannot even believe that we are out of time because I haven't talked about flip-flops. I haven't talked about the Frappuccino test. I haven't talked about balance and your mother. Uh, like, I, I need three more hours. But I knew this was going to happen. You're going to have to invite um, me back, Joyce. I'll be back. I would be, ha I would be happy to. Love to have you back. So the book is built to move. And I'm going to close with one quick story about my dear friend, Ted, uh, who did not know that we are friends and was telling me about this book he started to read and how great it was, but he likes to typically listen to books while he's out walking. That's his thing. And he was like, oh, but I just can't listen to this book while I'm out walking because there's so much in there that's interesting and then also practical that I want to actually try things right away. Um, so, and the book, of course, was yours. So for anybody out there, Built to Move gives you the background, the education, a limited fire hose of information and data, but in a way that literally makes you want to get up and try some of the movements, try the balance test, see where you're at, and then work your way towards better. So uh, Julia, honestly, I think that you guys hit the perfect balance of information and background and story and then really practical things that people can do to move better through their lives short term and long term. So um, I can't recommend it highly enough. And yeah, let's find another time to do this again because we got more to talk about. I'd be delighted and thank you so much for having me, Joyce. It was so fun. Have a beautiful day and we will talk again soon. Enjoy your walking, everyone. Thank you for joining us for today's Walk and Talk. Catch new episodes featuring inspiring guests every week and all the places podcasts live. Until then, I wish you happy trails.